3: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash membership.
0: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then reconceptualized to focus on a different world. Our question for episode 28 is, how can we best understand works of art? With discussion of American philosopher Nelson Goodman's 1978 book, Ways of World Making. For a link to that text, discussion, and other information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer exemplifying a myriad of physical and aesthetic properties from Madison, Wisconsin.
2: This is Seth Paskin, rightly expressing, from Austin, Texas. And this is Wes Allwan, I guess I'll take uh, denotating,
1: from uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Wow, and this is Jay Bailey, getting downright evangelical about the smiley face in Austin, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the smiley face? That's yeah, the ultimate symbol. Ah, I
0: see, I see.
1: Whenever describing how a, a symbol works uh, we started there in terms of yes. the, the ultimate simplification
0: so jay is here as our actual artist and our last aesthetics or i should say philosophy of art discussion which was episode 16 i believe for arthur danto we had said at that point gee we really should have somebody who actually knows something about visual art to be there to say whether the philosopher's words on that subject make any sense and jay happened to Comment on our blog about some things and mentioned his background and we got in touch with him and uh, but here he is. Why don't you say a little about what that background is? <laughs> okay. Well,
1: it's I've always been an artist. I think I was drawing before I was walking, at least that's what my mom likes to say. Many artists will always say I make art because I have to. It's just what I do. I'm one of those people, it's just always what I've done. In terms of like an academic background, I went to University of Nevada, Reno for my undergraduate degree. Went to the highly esteemed San Francisco Art Institute for some post-baccalaureate studies, and then finished up, got my master's at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. In terms of my practice, I've been basically working since I started making stuff and trying to exhibit and fine-tune my own
0: practice. So I know you'd read some Danto in your various classes.
1: I had, well... Your Danto episode highlights a really great idea and that there, a lot of philosophy is bleeding over into the arts, especially academia. And so while there are some great parallels between the two, and I very much personally feel that my interest in philosophy enhanced my art making and my practice, a lot of historians slash theorists slash critics have taken philosophy and it has very much become a part of your postmodern or contemporary art education. So... I had read Danto, a lot of other uh, hot names. What about Nelson Goodman? I had not. That's why this is actually a very exciting experience, because I was unfamiliar with him, and now I'm a little bit more familiar.
0: Yeah, I'm unclear to what extent Nelson Goodman is canonical. I mean, I had him in at least two different aesthetics courses, one in undergrad, and and I know I touched it in graduate school, although I can't even remember what the context was. However, I could see how if you are in an art school, you might not read him, because he doesn't go on and on about particular... Examples. Right. Right. He he's it's, it's very abstract in a way, and, and when he does bring in examples, it's kinda like, Well, if you don't like those examples, consider something else.
1: Yeah, well, a great deal of theory and philosophy that you're gonna read in an art school right now typically is coming from the art history angle. Usually most art departments are divided by either studio practice or more of a historical slash theoretical angle. There's where you, you get your PhDs and your critics and your writers, where on the other side you have more your salty dog that have just kind of been making art since they were born.
0: Is that what a salty dog refers to? (laughs) Oh,
1: (laughs) oh, man, the art field. I don't think people recognize this, but the art field probably has, I don't know, the idealized version of a salty dog. I mean, Jackson Pollock is is one of those fantastic examples where you just, you know, I've had professors that come in three sheets to the wind at eight in the morning and they're chain smoking. And I actually, (laughs) I had a professor actually say, all right, today class, we're talking about tattooing and brings in a former student of his, and the former student tattooed the teacher in front of the class. Oh. Wow. This is an estate-funded university, mind you. <laughs> and it was fantastic. The art department is like this bastard child on most university campuses. It's a great place to be.
0: See, now I feel like that about philosophy. <laughs> anybody, anybody outside your field doesn't really know what it's about, and they yeah, don't know true. how to administer it. And you know, with philosophy, people are constantly trying to disenfranchise it and say it's useless and we should just get rid of it in favor of more money for applied engineering and crap like that.
1: Right. Well, well the same thing. Well, philosophy and art, I mean, they're just not money makers in the university system in comparison to, say, certain sciences or, you know, I, I just came from Las Vegas, right, and the, the big thing of the school there was hotel management. And and <laughs> that was that was the one department that you were kind of held against. It's like, you know, you're doing okay, but you're not hotel management. <laughs>
0: Very nice. I remember you you were saying uh, about the Danto episode that you had to study a lot of this philosophy and theory and... In some ways, it was just a distraction from doing the art or something, or you had to kind of forget it in order to just get down to creating? Well, it's
1: difficult because, if I didn't state this earlier, I was very fortunate at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to actually teach for five years. So I was able to teach painting classes, drawing classes, and work in, in a studio practice with a lot of students and see them. I saw some kids come in as freshmen and then go off into graduate school. So I was very fortunate to see a lot of very young artists going through. And it, I saw on many occasions how philosophy and theory. And I don't want to lump in philosophy to say that you would take in a philosophy department. It's more art theorists who are taking this stuff and kind of, we'll say modifying it in a way that (laughs) suggests that it should impact a young artist's studio practice. And I saw how that happened. And from my point of view, I, I saw it as being rather detrimental because a lot of these young artists were getting in their own way and were getting a lot of these readings, which... Sadly, I I think, and a lot of times they didn't really understand and let that define their practice. But in a weird way, it's different because the art world, and this is where Danto comes in great, because the art world slash art market, it's a commodities market. And when you're going through an art school, typically a young artist is considering this marketplace. And a lot of these theorists or um, critics or philosophers are very valid voices in art magazines or art journals or the greater art world, which is actually rather small when you break it down to characters and publications. And so a lot of what these people think, these philosophers or these critics, can very much impact your career. And so it's pretty Mm -hmm. easy to go in and say, well, this guy's saying that I should paint in blue. So I'm going to paint in blue.
0: Actually, I think I remember hearing Nelson Goodman saying that all of the students should paint in grue. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Well,
0: then there's that stuff. I'm referring to the thing that Goodman is actually most famous for before he started writing. Did you guys read Seth and West? any of his, in classes, any of his philosophy of science stuff, his new riddle of induction no. or fact fiction and forecast? No. Nope. See, I know I had that in some, at least one class, which the whole grew thing, which is relevant to here. This is where he lost me in terms of getting through the text, which is actually,
1: I think it's really interesting on a lot of levels. But when he got into the grew, I, I put the brakes on.
0: <laughs> okay, I actually did make my way. So, this book that we read, Ways of Worldmaking from 1978, hmm. he'd already made a name for himself as an analytic philosopher. So, you can see that in some of the essays in Ways of Worldmaking where he goes very carefully and like considers different hypotheses for definitions, uses symbolic logic a little bit, and this typical analytic philosophy kind of thing, and he was much more into that beforehand. In fact, I guess the first big thing that that I know of was a paper he co-authored with Quine, right? Mm. uh, well-known neo-pragmatist. A nominalist. Steps toward a constructive nominalism, which I, in 1947, which I took a look at, which is a critique of the use of set theory in philosophy of mathematics. And this is relevant to what we read for this time. He's an extreme nominalist, which means he wants to rule out abstract entities. So in, in that particular case, it was talk of sets. But that goes really for... Everything throughout here. Everything needs to be concrete. But anyway, he's writing up these things about philosophy of math. He he sort of broke from that and by this uh fact fiction and forecast, which I think is a is a more famous book than this Ways of World Making, is from 1955, and this had this whole stuff about Gru and Bleen, which comes from this essay called The New Problem of Induction, which uh, we talked about uh we had a Hume episode where Hume's analysis of causality, and I don't want I'm not i am not going to go too far into this, it's very, very short.
2: Just get to the Gru point.
0: The Gru point is that if you're trying to figure out what counts as evidence toward a general hypothesis, then you have to figure out, the way he puts it, which predicates are projectable. And the, the example that he uses for that, it looks like if you're trying to say, all emeralds are green. And, you know, it seems like every emerald we look at, that one's green, that one's green, that one's green. So that seems to, all those give us evidence that all emeralds are green. There's nothing certain about it. It could turn out that we run across something, we chemically analyze it. This is an emerald, yet it's not green. Well, Goodwin's response to that is to say, Well, how do we distinguish between predicates like green, which we think is what's being instantiated, what's what we're giving evidence for by this, and something like grew, which means is green up to time T, but is blue after T, and T is, you know, right now, or T is in the future. So, I mean, of course, that seems like an absurd predicate. I mean, what kind of description would you give to something that it changes color in the middle but he argues pretty persuasively that just as you could give definition like i just did of grew in terms of green well heck you could also give definitions you could take grew as basic and give a definition of blue and of green in terms of grew and "bleen." right you could take either of these weird things as basic and derive the common predicates or you could take the common predicates and derive the other one so we have not explained so far then what makes us think that this is good evidence that all emeralds are green, but not that all emeralds are are grew
3: yeah, and that predicate is just chosen to exploit the weakness in induction that Hume points out, which is to say that yes they've all all emeralds are green up to this point, but at any given point in the future, uh that may not be the case, and so we can just take another predicate that acknowledges that fact, of course, that predicate isn't generally relevant to us and so the the category that we've happen to choose here the predicate we project depends upon custom or habit or our particular purposes. Yep. That's why we choose green as opposed to
1: grew. I would imagine that at 78 we decided on this text that I would imagine there was an artist in either 79 or 80 when looking at his status as a writer that did a body of work based on the idea of grew. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody in the early 80s had an entire career and was like a friend of Andy Warhol's, and I'm I'm certain of it.
0: Do you think that the guy that wrote Zork mm. had that, you know, Zork is a video game, an yeah, early yeah. Apple II game where you're in the dark more than two turns or something? You have been eaten by a Gru.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense.
0: All right, so the philosophy of science background, you know, he'd done this kind of stuff for a while. He had earlier in his career, from like 10 years, in the 40s, he was an art gallery manager, something like that. So that he'd gotten all this background. It took a little while, but eventually he hooked these interests back up so that he uh, tried to apply the same kind of analysis that he was giving to philosophy of science problems to aesthetics problems. So in this book, for instance, he talks about the style versus content distinction and how that's not what you think. And uh, several of these different distinctions, which I, I guess I would categorize as criticisms of the distinction we typically make between an, an artwork's intrinsic properties and extrinsic properties, right? How it looks in itself as opposed to what it refers to, for instance, or what style, you know, what artworks it's similar to. Those all seem like extrinsic properties. Oh, we want to just focus on the work itself. He argues throughout this book that those are misleading, that we have to make something else of that. And he he applies this induction thing really rather directly in talking that, well, I guess if I need to give a summary of the conclusion of this book, if you remember on our Danto episode, one of Danto's major themes was that philosophy disenfranchises art. Philosophy says art is just for entertainment, or art is just somehow, it, it tries to marginalize art by saying art is telling lies, right? Back to Plato, that Art is just, it's an imitation of an imitation. The poets are liars as opposed to the philosopher that's looking at truth. Nelson Goodman thinks very strongly that artworks, when they're good at least, are expressing, I wouldn't say truth in all cases, because if they're nonverbal artworks, you can't say that they have true or false claims embedded in them. But uh, they're right. Yes. Right rendering. Yes, that is correspondent to the notion of truth. And in fact, yes, this notion of rightness he's going to put forward in his epistemology as being sort of a master concept with truth just as a species of that right truth of explicitly stated literal claims is just a species of general rightness so that kind of puts him in something like the pragmatist camp but not exactly and that rightness by the way is a lot like the criteria
3: for truth of say linguistic statements because it involves this what he calls trying to fit in with other patterns or statements. So it's coherence in a way to a given conceptual scheme and to a given set of artworks and so on in the same way that, yeah. you know, say, scientific judgments are tested against a given conceptual scheme. In fact, he
2: quotes someone who compares artworks to experiments. This sounds like a perfect point for me to do my... Maybe we should build up from scratch and get to start... to get to... Because it's that's a pretty wild thing to say. But he does take some pains to at least try to like build up and, and explain what he means. And at least on the face of it, early on in the book, there is some logic to what he says. So one of his points is, we have this notion of truth that is some kind of correspondence theory of truth that's tied up with our notion of speaking or writing and our notion of propositions. So we say that something is true insofar as it corresponds to quote-unquote reality or it corresponds to the world or the facts. Whatever terminology you want to use, there's some form of correspondence there. And what he says about art is that art can represent something, but it's weird to say that it would represent something correctly or falsely, that art does more than just represent, and then there's art that doesn't even represent. Right. That art can express something, and that you might have two works of art that both represent or refer to the same thing, but express it in radically different ways. And that doesn't in any way take away from their validity or their rightness. So I think that's a good point to make. And it's useful to say that art, at least visual images, do not function in the same way as language does, at least as far as we understand it. And he's basically trying to come up with a way to explain that. And that was... Similar to the problem that Danto posed for us, because the criticism you just mentioned of Plato, where it's not just imitation, it's imitation of imitation, that it's just representational. That's all art is. And that, you know, my claim was that at the end of the book, it sounds like once you have photography, there's no need for painting anymore if all art is, is representational because photography Mm -hmm. does a much better job of representing, quote unquote. And then the 20th century is this giant struggle to try to figure out what art does if it doesn't represent. And Goodman is offering a solution to that, at least to to some extent.
0: And the solution, again, if I can try to finish it in two sentences, (laughs) is (laughs) that art has ways of symbolizing, of being a symbol system, other than just representing what something is a picture of. So music, too, acts as a symbol system, and non-representational abstract art acts as a symbol system. And one of the ways that it could be a symbol system, really anything is a symbol system if it refers, if it has reference, right? If it refers to something outside itself. So, of course, words, you know, if I talk about the dog, that refers to a dog. But if I, you could have a picture in an encyclopedia of a dog that just sort of, this picture isn't really, even though it looks like it's resembling a particular dog, it's supposed to represent the class of all dogs. Well, if I paint a picture really excitedly, then it's not only representing dog, maybe, or maybe it's not even a, you know, a, a real dog. It's a fictional dog, whatever, but it's expressing, it's exemplifying this emotion of anger or excitement or something like that. And then from there, the most peculiar thing that we need to work toward here is he says these non-representational artworks, they can exemplify that the way that they refer is by exemplifying properties that they themselves have. (laughs) So in other words, like if I draw something with a lot of energy, then I'm exemplifying this, I'm not even just expressing an emotion, but I'm exemplifying sort of an energetic style of drawing. And because we're familiar with other artworks that are written in that style, or maybe, you know, think about the sort of iconography that is used in comic strips, the fact that you know, they don't have to draw photorealistic things, but there are conventions that we know. Okay, that football is supposed to be moving through the air, or that guy is supposed to be rapidly looking in both directions. You know, so by exemplifying these properties that uh, refer to these general standards, you know, that's one of the ways that we understand art. And in fact, the reason I put the prime question here is what's the best way to understand art? Is because this is again part of Goodman's ongoing thing that we can't just look at the work in itself. We have to look in it at what it refers to outside itself, what these qualities that it exemplifies and what makes good art or bad art. Part of it is, does it exemplify accurately? Does it exemplify fairly? Does it do this? Well, this is why I just wanted to bring it back to the grew and bleen thing before we got an hour into it, just so people wouldn't think I was insane at the beginning for bringing this up, just because it was Goodman's most famous thing that in the, in that same way that in that essay, he's asking, you know, why is it that we think we can generalize, that we can project this predicate green, but not blean? Well, it's because of some convention. It's because of it's a well-entrenched predicate, is what he says. Well, in the same way, if you're drawing in a specific style, for instance, that's expressing, you know, according to these well-established ways. And the way that you could advance artistically is comparable to the way that you would tweak your overall outlook in science or in any other area. There's sort of, you rely on convention, but there's also room for innovation.
3: Can we, before we go on, just to make a quick distinction that just because we're using the word representational and, um, and then the word exemplify, right? Goodman talks about different kinds of reference. All art is referential and like language, its primary function is referential. It's just that Goodman's going to expand the idea of reference beyond mere denotation or or what you're calling representation to exemplification and expression. But when we use the word reference, we should keep in mind that Goodman is talking about different modes of reference, and uh, art will always possess some, and possibly all of those modes.
1: The conversation about art, in a lot of ways, seems to always forget about the viewer, which the viewer is the person who's experiencing the art, whether it's music, whether it's sculpture, whether it's literature, whether it's you know horrible abstract dance or you know whatever. <laughs>
0: But there are no viewers of horrible strap dance. Well,
1: I mean, there, there, there's the conundrum then with that, I guess. <laughs> but the viewer defines you know, the idea of what is good art, what is bad art. I mean, each viewer defines that in their own way based on their own leanings. And so in a weird way, that's what defines all of these conversations. And so I think it's really easy to theorize in many different directions about how a work of art works The symbolic content. I mean, the symbolic content in this piece, in contrast to that, is it more broad? So the you know, is it American Idol? So the cat's a really wide net, but at the same time, is really quite horrible, right? They say it's like the Thomas Kincaid, if you guys are familiar with who that is. Or more of a specialized artist with a smaller, I guess, group of people that really enjoy that artist's work, but it's that much more specialized and that much more unique. So uh, in a weird way, I think a lot of times that is forgotten that pretty much anything that defines a work of art, the person that's defining that work of art is the viewer. And there's a weird separation, I think, that needs to happen there where you can't talk about the properties of a work of art unless you talk about the prejudices and the viewpoints of that viewer, because those properties are going to modify viewer to viewer.
0: Now, I made a note while you were saying that of Thomas Kincaid. I will force you on the blog in the week after this episode has come Oh, I, up. I
1: guarantee all of you know who Thomas Kincaid is.
0: We will put postings about each of these people that you name drop and examples.
1: Thomas Kincaid is the painter of light, end quote. I'm certain you've seen his work because he's the guy that has these... They're actually kind of attractive in a weird way, but... There are these angelic village scenes, and he has stores, had stores, operative word, had stores and shopping malls all over the country. He was in Walmarts. He was everywhere. I mean, it was like the NASCAR of the art world.
0: Okay, yeah, I just pulled up something. It's like a a beautiful lighthouse on the the side of a a riverbank. It's gorgeous. I mean... It looks like little gnomes are going to come out. Everybody
1: has a neighbor that has a Thomas Kincaid in their house. It's inevitable.
3: Now, are we supposed
0: to hate and him? You know, and,
1: he, and he was actually rather genius in marketing. That he Quote, unquote, he's the painter of light, and he's the painter of God's light. Oh, my light.
0: God. <laughs> Did you just pull up one in wes Yeah. They're,
3: Is this right? K-I-N-K-A-D-E? Gen- yes.
1: Yeah. I'm certain are that you, Google would. Were you just would.
3: about to say genius? <laughs>
1: Well, genius is a really problematic term. Especially marketing as genius. A, I would say marketing genius. I mean, because you think about it, it seems to say, well, I paint God's light. So there is a, especially in the United States, rather sizable audience that when they hear that three letter word, I mean, they get interested. And then when they see these really nice American, and I would, you know, capital A American towns, and it's kind of Disney-like, and, you know, it's where everyone wants, I mean, I want a vacation in these places just like anybody else would. I mean, this
0: man's- Castle with a rainbow behind yeah. it.
1: and All the guy's right. a multimillionaire, but is that good art? You know, and if you contrast that to, say, uh, Jenny Seville, who is one of my favorite artists, and her works are these massive paintings of very grotesque nude figures. I mean to me that's I would love to have one of these things if I had a room large enough to hold one of these paintings but compare that to Thomas Kincaid I, I think I was the first person in history to ever compare Jenny Seville to Thomas Kincaid <laughs>
2: that's, I, just,
3: I love the juxtaposition mm-hmm but I, I think a more important question is whether Thomas Kincaid's mustache is in good taste yeah <laughs> If you Google a picture.
1: It's interesting. Well, and again, I mean, you talk the art world, again, in capital letters, or at least the first letter, there's this strange hierarchy to it. And someone like a Thomas Kincaid, you're going to go to Walmart and you're going to find his art. You're going to find him in calendars. You're going to find him in prints. For a long time, he had all these retail stores in malls that were they are right next to your record stores or your Macy's or whatnot. And it's like a little gallery setting and you go in and you can buy an original, which would be really expensive because the man actually touched it and applied paint or he paid someone to touch it and apply paint. Right. And he signed his name or you can buy prints and they'll frame it for you and all of that. And you have a great amount of people going in and they really enjoy that aesthetic experience. And it's in a weird way, it's kind of hard to argue against that because they're happy and they go home and they put that above their television and which is, you know, they have their pictures of their family on their television, their Thomas Kincaid above that, and it's just that's home.
0: Now, can we use this as an initial since we've described this and we'll put up pictures of it yeah. example experiment to figure out whether we understood what Nelson Goodman actually has to say about art criticism specifically because it's hard yeah and i i think the question
3: is whether he thinks there's a basis for condemning it
0: and saying
3: no this is in bad taste or, or is he that much of a relativist or and i would say i'm not sure that he is but he's a relativist of some sort
1: i didn't get that feeling
3: based
0: on that he would certainly say that these associations that you were bringing up with malls Uh, (laughs) that these are right on that we don't evaluate the work in itself a key part of even correctly understanding it not just something that we happen to do because we're not focusing enough on the painting itself is bringing in these social connections so the fact that it looks like these uh storyboards from a horrific uh, fantasy movie animation aimed at seven-year-olds is entirely relevant
1: that's a large conversation that happens around a work of art where if you look at a painting and you know i don't like it and then you find out the backstory you you learn all about the artist and the time in which he or she lived And then you go back and you look at the painting and then you have this newfound appreciation for it. I think we all connect with that. You know, Apocalypse Now can be kind of boring. But then when you watch Heart of Darkness, you go back and watch Apocalypse Now. and It's pretty awesome.
2: Goodman actually says in the book that the experience of a work of art is part of the world making process. He almost suggests that the individual interpretation creates the world. But of course, you know, he doesn't want to go that far into individualism. But there's definitely that in there.
3: Right, that artist is creating, is engaging in a certain type of world making, and that world is going to be something that, say, you know, the buyer at Walmart performs their version of an... It passes the test for them, to put it in the right, right parlance that relates it to science. It passes the test for them, but the question of right design is broader, because it's like a, a hypothesis survives a certain number of experiments, but then it's later on disconfirmed. And so you have examples of art that are pretty lasting, like the Rembrandt that Goodman talks about that has a certain endurance to it, generation after generation. So the question is whether or not there's going to be that endurance for this world or how broadly it's going to apply, how much effect it's going to have. So there are standards for saying this picture is rightly designed, to quote Goodman, or is not rightly designed. And it depends on this concept of testing, this idea that's analogous to scientific experiments. No. And he
0: definitely has a respect for an educated eye. And I, I'm not exactly sure how to cash this out specifically in his vocabulary about exemplification and things like that. But certainly if you you know see some of these paintings, they seem really cool, but then you learn a lot more about the history of art sure. and you sort of see exactly how ripped off this is. And, you know, a sort of inferior knockoff of a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that was created before that. Then of course you have much less respect for the initial work, then maybe you did in the first place, and that its orientation within the overall knowledge base, you know, is going to have a definite effect on on how you judge it.
1: I appreciated music far more before I learned how to play guitar. Just like everybody, I, I had the, my favorite bands and whatnot, and I wanted to play guitar. And I learned to play guitar, and I go back, and I don't like my favorite bands anymore. You know, sometimes a Metallica song is just an awesome Metallica song or whatever the case may be. And as soon as you enlighten yourself, you can analyze the joy out of why you enjoy this aesthetic experience, which is it to me. In my experience, I like to argue from that point of view, because I think there's a lot to be said for a visceral connection that you have with these experiences, whether it's music or a movie or there's this really fantastic example. And I don't know if any of you have seen Basquiat, the Julian Schnabel movie, which is about the artist in the 80s. And it starts off in this really, it's his introduction to art and he's traveling Spain with his mother and he can't be more than, say, eight or nine he sees Guarnica, you know, Picasso's Guarnica, which I believe you talked about in the Danto episode. And, and the movie has it like it was like this coming to purpose. He sees this painting and he's just in line, like he's seeing an angel. He's just enamored with this artistic experience. and And obviously, if he's such a young child, he can't be a quote unquote enlightened viewer that we're talking about. But he has this visceral connection that It's not scientific, so we can't necessarily measure it, and it's really hard to apply bad and good to it. But there's a lot to, you know, some people just love a certain work of art, and they can't explain why, they just do. And it's an interesting conversation when you're talking about something like Goodman. You know, he was writing about mathematics beforehand, and so there's a very scientific approach. To me, it seems like a collision of sensibilities.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode preview. I know it stops just when things were getting really good, so please go download the full episode. You can purchase it in the music section of the iTunes store or at PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash store, where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our hefty back catalog, a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash membership for details.